first episode of the podcast series Talking APAC for 2022. APAC stands for Australian Psychology Accreditation Council and we're the organisation that ensures the quality of psychology courses offered by higher education providers in Australia. APAC acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land and we pay our respects to elders past and present. My name is David Glanz and I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri people, one of the five Kulin nations. Now, there are currently 42 higher education providers around Australia delivering psychology programs and each provider is assessed every five years to ensure that their programs are still suitable for accreditation. And that involves APAC assessors, psychology professionals with a wealth of practicing and learning and teaching experience, conducting a site visit backed up by APAC staff. For the past two years, the pandemic has meant that site visits have been virtual, but we hope we can return to face-to-face interactions soon. So what's the process like? To find that out, today I'm talking to an assessor. Professor Elizabeth Jones is head of the Department of Psychology at Monash University, Malaysia. And Liz is an APAC assessor, a veteran of many site visits and a member of our accreditation assessment committee. So welcome, Liz. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, before we get into some of your insights around assessment, can you just tell listeners a bit about your career so far? So I undertook my Bachelor of Arts in majoring in psychology starting at the University of New England back in the 1980s. I got married midway through my degree and transferred to the University of Queensland where I did the rest of my bachelor's, my honours degree and my PhD. And that gave me the great experience of attending both a regional university and one of the GO8. My first academic job was at what was called then Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education, but it's now the University of Southern Queensland. I then went for a position at Griffith University in the business school, which was quite different from working in psychology, but well prepared me for then moving back into Griffith University School of Psychology where I had responsibility for both undergraduate and postgraduate teaching, with my postgraduate teaching in organisational psychology. And I think that makes me unusual because I've been a program director of both undergraduate and postgraduate programs involved in the redevelopment of both undergraduate and postgraduate programs. Then in late 2020, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, I commenced this position with Monash University of Malaysia, where I relocated in January last year. Yes, what an amazing time to make such a big change. Now, what made you decide to become an APAC assessor? Uh, You're clearly very qualified for the role, but what made you decide to become one? And has taking on the role been a useful experience uh, for you and even for your employer? So I'm fairly passionate, as people will tell you, about providing high quality education in psychology at both undergraduate and postgraduate levels. And as I said, I think it's that unique combination that I've had so much teaching experience across all levels, including a lot of PhD supervision and running 
postgraduate programs where the postgraduate training, coursework training is embedded in a PhD. So I, I covered the spectrum and I also was very fortunate early in my career to teach with some people that I didn't realise at the time were quite innovative in their delivery of education. And I think that set me up well for being able to be constantly improving and changing the way we were doing our education and psychology at Griffith in particular. And I think I saw the opportunity that I thought, yeah, indeed, I did come with some real skills to offer in terms of individual units or courses, places call them different things, looking at programs, but also I was on the University Council at Griffith as well. And that gave me an added perspective of seeing how the different levels that you need to be thinking about. If you're going to deliver high quality education, you need to understand all those different levels. Has it been useful for me? Well, of course, it's wonderfully useful for me. I have the opportunity to have visited many universities and seen documentation for many universities around the country and see the innovations they've done, being able to think about how I can incorporate that in my own teaching or the teaching of those around me. And of course, my institution, both Monash and previously Griffith, value the fact that I do understand what APAC is looking for to meet the standards to deliver high quality teaching. And I add that bit because it's not just meet the standards. We're not meeting the standards for the sake of having a set of rules that people have to meet. Those standards are designed so that we can deliver high quality psychology training in Australia. And that's part of what I'm really proud of is contributing to that. Now, one of your professional focuses is organisational psychology. Has that been useful in understanding the functioning of the higher education providers you visit? Do you think you've been able to get a little bit of additional insight because of your expertise there? So thank you. I do am very aware of using my organisational psychology training in the work I do as an assessor. How do I do that? Well, here's some examples. First of all, I've had a lot of experience working as a consultant in organisational psychology. And so that's the ability to go into organisations, diagnose, develop interventions, evaluate what they're doing. And so in a sense, I'm transferring that same set of skills to undertaking APAC assessors. I also think that it gives me the ability to attend to the fact that a program doesn't just exist in isolation within a university, it's embedded within a provider, a department, which is embedded within a provider. And they may use different names for all of these, but there will always be what used to be called the academic operating unit that the program sits within and then the wider university. I think understanding that as a system and thinking about that gives me some unique insights to offer. But even something as simple as also an organisational psychologist is thinking about the well-being and the performance of individuals, teams and organisations and what are the factors that are involved in that. And I think that's been important for me because I might ask different questions to other people and a good example of that is when I'm thinking about the staffing, I'm asking them, What's your absentee rate? What's your turnover? I'm looking for indicators that there might be problems that someone who doesn't have that background in organisational psychology might not attend to. Sounds extremely valuable. Now, when you 
you, you've obviously indicated some questions you do ask, but when you first arrive on a campus, whether it's in real life or in the metaverse, what are you looking for? Before we go on the actual APAC visit, a whole lot of work will already have occurred. The provider will have submitted to us a wide range of evidence for them about how they think they are meeting the standards. And we also have the opportunity, even before we visit, to ask them for additional information which they will deliver. We have two team meetings before we undertake a site visit, which are our opportunity to assess initially what do we think about whether the provider is meeting, meeting each of the different standards for each of the different programs that they're seeking accreditation for? But that's an initial evaluation based on that if written evidence that we've been provided with. What we know is that is only one part of the evidence we need. So we will come with a set of questions of particular things that we're looking for to gather further information about or to verify information we've been given. At the same time, we also come with a very open mind that means we might have thought there was a problem with a provider or we might have thought they're doing a fantastic job here, but we know we've only had that one source of evidence. Now we need to go and gather evidence from all range of other sources, which includes all the key stakeholders Stakeholders to us are senior executive, members of the department or the school or unit that's delivering the program, current students, past students, supervisors who might be supervising professional placements. We want to ask all of those people questions and find out their viewpoints because we will find that sometimes, and it's very useful, we'll find there's a real concurrence of what they're saying, other times we'll be getting disparate views and we need to interrogate why. And of course there's simply a walk around the facilities. So we did make use when we've had to do um, online visits. We did have people do video recordings trying to give us the nearest they could have equivalent of that. But there we are, we're going, as I said, to look and gather a much wider range of evidence to make our assessment. And we know that it's only when we have all of that evidence that we are able to make a really good, valid, reliable judgment about whether the standards are being met. Now, you've been an assessor for some time, about five and a half years, I believe. Have you noticed any patterns, whether good or bad, that repeat themselves over time and across providers? And that's an interesting question because in part that depends on the types of providers and the types of programs they're offering. Because of course there's enormous variability in Australia in the types of universities we have, whether they're in metropolitan areas or regional areas, whether they're offering their programs predominantly face-to-face -face or online. So I think there's, it's hard to go for patterns when there's that level of variability. And of course, some emphasize more undergraduate, some postgraduate. What I do think though, is that good and bad, there's obviously been enormous changes in recent years to deliver much more of our education, either online or in a blended or hybrid environment. And I sometimes joke that we start to see some of the same words being used and you think, 
have some of the senior exec been to the same professional development activities or conferences because suddenly someone's asking about those same new ways of doing things that sound awfully like that. But then when you look underneath, you find that each provider is also finding their unique ways to respond to those external drivers that you can certainly see, be they from government or from the sector that are operating for them. So repeat themselves. I think if I was going to go to almost a very micro level, probably one of the most common things that's not bad, it's just I think a learning experience that can reflect that for many people teaching in higher education, they don't undertake formal training in education. Increasingly universities are doing that with junior staff, but many staff have never had that. And so one of the most common things I'll say to a provider is, what we are looking for is if there's a particular competency that we're asking you to demonstrate how you, that you are um, delivering that competency, we want to see it in a learning outcome we want to see it taught, we want to see it assessed. So a common one, an example of that is a provider will say, but we assess them, they do group work together, and we'll say, is it a learning outcome? Have you taught them anything about how to do group work? Are you actually assessing their group work skills or just an assessment that they did in a group? So I think an important role that we've seen we have is that we, as APAC assessors, we have an opportunity to be educating people to think about education more generally, not just um, meeting the accreditation standards. Apart from avoiding the latest corporate jargon, what advice would you give a provider who's preparing for a site visit? We are looking for evidence, and I think one of the challenges we've had is when we say to people we're thinking about evidence, is that many providers, and this probably is in part answering your previous question, what's one of the bads? The provider approach can be, if in doubt, give them more information. And at times providers provide us with so much information and a very difficult way to work our way through that it can be very hard for us to find the answers we're looking for. So at times providers will say, but we gave you that information and we will go where, show us where that is. Because if you send me a PDF of 1500 pages, it's going to be very hard for me to find the answer to my specific question. So my first advice for my provider is, you know, think about us, the users of the information you're giving us and try and provide it in the most user-friendly way for us. Break it down by different standards, different programs and make it easy for us. But we also encourage people to think, I think sometimes people approach this as a really negative experience that's going to come up, we're really worried about it. We want to encourage providers to prepare students and staff and themselves that we regard this as a very much collaborative, should be a positive experience for most providers, where there's an opportunity to showcase what you're doing well, but to get some constructive feedback to help you improve what you're doing. We're not here to give people, you know, a slap on the wrist. We're here to provide feedback to you and say, here's the things you're doing well. And I love the opportunity we have in our reports to give commendations to providers for where they're particularly outstanding in an area. But also, this is your opportunity to get some constructive feedback about what you're doing, to get some new ideas. And you certainly see some providers approach it with that attitude. 
I want to encourage all providers to do that. Now, psychology education is a smallish world. How do you ensure that you and your colleagues avoid any potential hint of bias? After all, you might be talking to somebody who's a former colleague, someone who might be applying for a job at, uh, at Monash. Uh, it's, there are complications there. So how do you work around that? And you are right that there are potential complications and we are acutely aware of that. So I think one of the benefits of the fact that I'm a registered psychologist for me is that I understand about dual relationships and particularly when you work in the area of organisational psychology, dual relationships is a huge problem. So we know about that and we know about the ethics that sit around that. For the reassurance of providers, the first thing we're asked to do if I'm asked to be an assessor for a site visit is I sign a declaration where I declare any potential conflicts of interest. For example, if I have previously worked with a provider, if I'm currently supervising a PhD student there, if I've been involved in doing a review there, any of that would be documented and considered in terms of my suitability to be an assessor. For a long time, we worked on the fact that we would avoid doing assessments providers in our own state where we lived. Um, that has become messier as many providers now operate across states, but we certainly do pay attention to that. Normally, we wouldn't be an assessor for a provider in our own state. But we also give the provider the opportunity also to give feedback. And if they have any concerns about someone assigned to them as an assessor, if they see a potential for a conflict of interest, they have the opportunity to get, give that feedback and it would be considered whether we should look for someone who may be seen as more suitable by the provider. So yes, we're very, very careful about that. At the start of our meetings, we will raise if we have any concerns, if anything's come up. That's something we talk explicitly about because it is important. Absolutely. Now, I note that another of your professional interests is the question of life transitions. Now, there's a very big difference between an 18-year-old school leaver starting a bachelor program and a mature age student undertaking postgraduate specialist training but the assessment team is looking for the education outcomes and standards for both ends of the spectrum. How do you factor in your insights about life transition when you're looking at the uh, learning and teaching around a suite of programs? That's a great question. And I think one of the lovely things about seeing many different universities is that I have seen how they themselves will target particular markets and think about, therefore, how they need to adapt their programs. So we have universities that primarily are focusing on school leavers, and that's their market, whereas other universities very much focus on mature age students. They will focus on people who may be first in family. There are universities who have gone out to target particular groups, including first peoples or people with disabilities. So I think the first thing is not so much our insights assessing, it's more providers have been making choices themselves about who they are going to target and therefore what support they're providing. But when we go to visit, that's certainly a part of what we're there to do. You know, there are standards and there are criteria within the standards that speak to the support being provided to a students that enable them to successfully complete their degrees. 
So we do look at that. I think sometimes people think, oh, they're the easy criteria. We'll just tick off those ones. Everyone's got a policy about students with a disability or students who are first peoples. But in fact, people can end up having conditions put against those standards, those criterion, in the same way as any other standard. Because we are looking and asking questions. Are you providing the support that will enable your students to successfully complete this degree in a reasonable time frame, in a reasonable way, without causing any undue stress. You know, we do look at those policies and processes, and we don't just look, do policies and processes exist? We are all cynical enough to ask the question, and are they being used, and how are they being used? So you can have a policy, but no one even knows it exists until it's APAC visit time and it's never implemented in any meaningful way. So we are looking at all of that when we're making our assessment. And just over time, have you seen, hopefully, any positive trends around, for instance, opening up education to people with living with disabilities or people from First Nations, uh, the transition from good intentions to actually good outcomes? I think this has been an area of massive change, even in the five and a half years I've been an APAC assessor. The way people are, I think that psychology as a whole is a profession, psychology education as a whole, and not just individual providers. We are much more aware now of what we need to be doing in this space. Probably one of the biggest shifts has certainly been around our first peoples in Australia, and it's the area that can still many providers are still working on. How do we do this in a meaningful way? How do we teach about First Peoples and the practice of psychology and the knowledge of psychology for First Peoples? And also, how do we support students who come from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background? So that is very much one of the biggest shifts I think you picked there has been around support. I've singled out their particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders because we specifically note them within our standards. But I think it is also much more generally the types of support and the awareness of the support needed to give opportunities for people from diverse backgrounds has been one of the very pleasing changes in higher education and in psychology specifically. Excellent. Now, finally, you've worked in both Australia and Malaysia. Just to take us out, finish up the episode, I wondered, have you noticed any differences in approaches to the practice of psychology and the teaching of psychology between the two countries? And uh, to be selfish, is there anything that professionals here in Australia can benefit from? A huge question, one I unsurprisingly been thinking a lot about. I'm going to answer with a simple answer and then a much more complex one. The simple answer, which was surprising to me when I came to work for Monash University in Malaysia, was to find out that in Malaysia, the profession of psychology is not currently a licensed profession. Counselors are, but psychology isn't. So there is a Malaysians, the same way that we have, in a sense, APAC standards, it's more like the TEXA approach here in terms of the Malaysian qualifications framework that oversees psychology training but there isn't that registration or licensing of the profession. So that was quite a surprise to me, and it's something that they're working on changing here at present. 
But I think what's more interesting for me is I've been grappling with very big questions, which is what is psychology and how do we study psychology? What are the research methods we use? And thinking about that in this country has been having to rethink that I have a particular very Western viewpoint on what is psychology and how we study it. And every month that I'm here, I get new insights to rethink both of those things. And we recently at Monash ran a Southeast Asian Indigenous Psychology Conference, which was, I learned as much as I helped organize that conference of thinking again about what is psychology. I think Monash University has a unique opportunity because it has a campus in Malaysia and Australia, and we're currently undertaking curriculum renewal, including looking at how we teach indigenous psychology and how we give our students better training in working with people who are culturally and linguistically diverse. And we're saying we have a unique opportunity to draw on knowledge and skills and understandings from Malaysia and offer that to Australian students. So yes, I think there is a way that professionals in Australia can benefit by engaging with psychology and psychologists in other countries. Thank you for asking that question. My pleasure. Well, thanks for your time, Liz. It, the, it, the time has flown past. That has been a really fascinating conversation. If people want to know more about APAC or about our assessment activities and requirements, you can head to our website at Psychology Council. That's all one word, psychologycouncil.org.au. Otherwise, we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Till then, goodbye. <laughs>